In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Betches Media presents... Chrissy Teigen referred to Donald Trump as a pussy-ass bitch. Look, he's a sick puppy. He, he, shouldn't be, he shouldn't be there. Well, I lost half a day of skiing. I'm going to punch him out and I'm going to go to jail. I'm going to be happy. The Betches Sub Podcast. A speaker has not been elected. Hello, this is the Better Stuff Podcast, where C-SPAN meets the group chat to help you process and laugh at the biggest topics in U.S. news and politics. I'm Amanda Duberman, the news director at Betches. I'm Elise Morales, a comedian and writer of the Betches Sup newsletter. And I'm Millie Tamaris, comedian and sub video contributor. We're going to go through our segments fairly quickly today because we have some amazing guests joining us for the second half of the show. We will start with our number. Today's number is six because that is the number of Cokes you'd have to drink to get as much caffeine as you'll find in Logan Paul's energy drink. <laughs> a headline that caught my eye this morning was, this is the intersection for us, is that Senator Chuck Schumer, our senator, has called on the FDA to investigate this beverage. It's called Prime. Logan Paul makes it along with another very popular YouTuber named KSI. YouTubers are crazy because it'll be someone I've never heard of, and they have 30 million followers. That's, that's always the, it, it, yeah. That's or, always the thing, so and it's like... It's like, oh, people, they're famous because people watch them play video games on Mm -hmm. YouTube. And I'm like, there's so many levels between me and that. (laughs) (laughs) I have like very specific trauma of a guy that I had a crush on. And I'm I'm using trauma lightly, like which is not important. Don't use therapy speaking correctly, yeah, Millie. I can't exactly. We'll <laughs> talk about that it. later. But I have a very a bad memories. How about that? About a guy I had a crush on asking me to hang out and then proceeding to watch him play video games. And to me, it was like the most degrading, insulting thing of my life. Mm. And these people are just watching it every day. And I'm just like, okay, people are paying money. Mm-hmm. to be mm-hmm. college Millie. But apparently <laughs> not enough money <laughs> that Logan Paul didn't need to launch this energy drink. So this drink, has it's called Prime. It's apparently earned a bit of viral popularity with kids. Of course, like kids love YouTube. When I babysat, this, this seven-year-old would just watch would watch like elder teenagers play video games on Twitch forever. So of course, like they, they, they worship these, these young men. And so of course, when they come out with a, a drink, it's like, cool, that's, that's what I'm going to be about. So there's apparently a cult obsession among kids who will line up outside grocery stores or sell, buy it and then sell it at a profit at recess. The thing is, okay. this drink has 200 that's someone milligrams who's growing up to be a caffeine. scammer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Watch that or, or a billionaire. Or both. Yeah. Or, well, or both. Yeah. Honestly, can't have one without the other. Exactly. Exactly. No <laughs> ethical billionaires, no billionaires that are not scammers. But Prime has 200 milligrams of caffeine. That is as much as six cans of Coke. It's also as much as two Red Bulls or as much as three cups of coffee. And like I was looking at the stock images of this and like it's little kid hands that are holding this drink. Prime claims it doesn't market its beverages to kids because they uh, they have another beverage that's called Prime Hydration. And that's the one that they market towards kids. But kids, they don't know the difference. And kids like caffeine probably sounds like 
I mean, it is speed for children. They're probably like, oh, wow, you feel weird when you drink this. And so they're lining up and trying to buy it from each other. It is so bad for children that it has been banned in some schools, schools in the UK and Australia because obviously pediatricians warned that it's marketed to young people and this could open them up to anxiety as well as heart and digestive issues. Can you imagine? Millie, you're babysitting right now. I don't know how, maybe that's not correct. I don't know how old your niece is. But she's 14. You, she's yeah. 14. Can you imagine her, a 14-year-old on 200 milligrams of caffeine? No, it's Her teachers. It's wrong. Um, yeah, I get, you know, and it's just like, you know, Logan Paul and the, and the like, like they're never (laughs) going to get tired of making money off their people. Even if it's bad, like they will literally sell gasoline to their followers if they can make an extra dollar, which they literally do. Gasoline specifically to drink. You mean? Yeah. Gasoline to drink. Yes, yes, yes. Not actual, nothing that will make anything better. Yeah, they will drink, drink like they will sell drinkable diesel. And also, I was just watching on TikTok where people will come. Like, I love watching um, non-Americans go to Walmart or like Target and buy <laughs> snacks and like see what they're fascinated by. And one of them, like this one woman was buying so many primes mm-hmm. to take back wow. to England because the that's what her the playground well, this woman's like, I've been in America visiting my family, whatever. The only thing my son wants is Prime. Wow. And, and that's he's making crazy. me get it. Because it's like I think a it's status boys, symbol. Yeah. It's a status symbol to like have the Prime thing. Do you guys remember Surge? Oh, yeah. At least it had, was Surge the one that had the little like crystals in it or like the little like. I think it was basically just like Mountain Dew, but it had like 50 milligrams of caffeine. So it made oh, you feel, no, it I'm made you feel kind of crazy. Um, I remember Monster used to come to my high school, like a Monster truck energy, like a Monster energy truck would come. And I think it was like around football games or something. And they would like pawn Monster energy off on us. Fast forward like three years and we're all like blacking out to Four loco. So it's just, <laughs> you know. But as someone who's worked in after school programs and seen the effect of giving a child a single gummy worm, like this does <laughs> scare me. <laughs> like yeah. I can't I truly can't imagine. Someone's gonna get hurt. Yeah. This one girl on TikTok was showing that she drank uh Celsius every day for two years and now has heart problems. So and she was like a grown ass woman. If I drank two hundred milligrams of caffeine at one time. I mean, I know what panic attacks feel like now, so I wouldn't have to go to the hospital, but I would think I had to. I can't do that shit. And so to be like an eight-year-old who's never done that, yeah, not not good. Don't market this shit to children. All right. For our main news, we have to, for some reason today, we have two grown blonde men to discuss. Uh, okay. Logan Paul <laughs> was number one, and now Jonah Hill. This this is this is a political story. It is the biggest topic in U.S. news and politics, and that does mean it's a fairly slow week. Yes, of course, there's the cluster of munitions, and people should be talking about that in Ukraine. I don't know if we're the experts, but we are the experts on fuckboys manipulating therapy speak <laughs> against <laughs> their romantic partners. Yes. So if you're not following this controversy, it is too, a bit too elaborate for us to explain here, but I think you, you girls can fill in the gaps for me as we get to the discussion point. But the gist is that Jonah Hill, the actor, his ex-girlfriend, a woman named Sarah Brady, she publicly shared text messages between her and Hill that says she says show, and I think I agree, show emotional abuse and pretty controlling behavior. To summarize the text show, Jonah Hill listing out, there's lots of texts 
it's quite a saga, but I think the text that's gone around the most is the one of Jonah Hill listing out certain behaviors his girlfriend cannot participate in, but he calls these his boundaries. He says that, you know, by him saying, by him demanding that she not post bathing suit pictures online or surf with men, she's a semi-professional surfer, that's pretty tough, uh, that that's simply him setting his boundaries in the relationship. Many on the internet have pointed out that controlling a woman's behavior and restricting what she can do and who she can spend time with, that's that's not exactly synonymous with setting boundaries. It is synonymous with a lot of other things like controlling behavior, even some coercive control elements. And there's also just been a lot of the discourse has been this is somebody, this is the man who claims to be very therapized. He's like monetized how much, you know, therapy he's gone to. And people say he's sort of like manipulating that to manipulate her. There have also been, I think the reason we're even talking about this is because there have been some surprising counter reactions with some saying that Jonah Hill did nothing wrong and how he expressed his needs. And others say that regardless of the text content, Brady should not have made them public. So the discussion here is sort of suppy because it's about, you know, the dynamics of women who are in relationships with men and what kind of behavior within a romantic relationship is uh, simply self-respect and setting boundaries versus what is emotional abuse. So what what did I leave out here that that is weighing on you or what kind of like what really like got you going about this this news story? At least you want to start. Yeah. So for me, I have been for a while interested in this conversation around the idea of like therapy speak and how it's kind of being used in an it, it I don't want to use the word nefarious, but it's being misused in interpersonal relationships in general, I think, these days. And I've seen this discussion on Twitter a lot, even about among people who are friends and like kind of putting up this like really cold, almost like HR like boundary in your interpersonal relationships and being like, well, I am actually like basically saying like I'm doing this for my mental health and then it kind of shuts down all conversation with the other person because once you bring that into it and you say like like what Jonah Hill is saying is like well for my mental health I can't be with someone who has surfing photos with men and then it's like okay well then maybe don't date a semi-professional surfer for your mental health. Like, why Mm -hmm. is it actually her responsibility to change everything about her life that you knew going into the relationship for your mental health? Like, that's where I think the conversation becomes controlling and emotionally abusive and all of that stuff. Because as Millie actually pointed out to me when we were hanging out this weekend, one of the other things that she revealed in these texts is that the reason he first slid into her DMs was to comment on a photo of her surfing and say like, oh, you look so good. You look so sexy. So it's like, this is the thing that brought you into this relationship, but now you're going to tell her she can't engage in it. That's where I think it gets controlling and emotionally abusive. I think if you're a man who's kind of so small and insecure that you can't date a woman who has bikini photos up or who hangs out with men, then like, I guess, seek out a woman where that's already the status quo in her life. Don't find someone who is a surfer. That is her thing, who you were attracted to her page by bikini and surfing photos and then try to take that out of her life. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> just everything that you said. And um, I, I, I tweeted this, but it's just like there I've also been interested in like having this discussion about people who use therapy speak as a way to cover up their abusive and manipulative behavior. I think that the red flag for me, for the, a lot of the discourse has been like, well, he's not doing anything wrong. She can leave the relationship. She can leave the relationship. But the thing is that, you know, if you've like heard any or read up on anything of like domestic violence, it's like, it's a slippery slope. And it starts with breaking down and isolating and removing you from community and having you like your identity be wrapped up in, you know, making someone not upset and like walking on eggshells and all this. And I think like just my two takeaways is like, again, I've been sus about specifically Jonah Hill um, for a while because he used therapy speak to get out of um, doing press for his Netflix movie, you people, you know, the whole thing was that he, um, you know, his mental health isn't, you know, in a good place and he, he can't like like doing the press junkets drain him and all of that which is like a one and it's like understandable right like and it's like okay like again it's progress to be self-aware about yourself but the the part of that which is again related to the surfing thing is like that is part of the job like doing press for the and what ended up happening was that um lauren london the black woman his co-star was it was had to do all the press by herself and hold it when like probably the only reason they bought netflix even bought the movie was because jonah hill was attached so it it put his his co-star in an uncomfortable position and it's also like yeah okay so you you want to have this high profile high paying job but you don't want the things that come with it you want to have a beautiful woman who's has her own interest and has her own life but you don't want the things that come with it which is like yeah people are gonna see her in online with a bikini and also like she's gonna like surfing is a male-dominated sport like that you know so when she's when he's like i don't want you surfing with men it's like the ocean like you want people to get yeah. kicked out of the ocean like it yeah. doesn't make any sense and it's just not in any state of that's basically saying quit your job to her. Yeah, it's like quit your job and 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 also like I don't want you to have friendships with uh unstable women, you know, besides coffee. Like really putting parameters again and I think another conversation that is had is like what is a boundary? Right? When we're talking about misusing the word boundary, it's like a boundary is something that you put on for yourself. It's like I don't like uh, I can't be around people drinking, so I'm going to remove myself from the thing. I uh, can't deal with this today, so I'm going to leave. Not I, you know, which a lot of people <laughs> I do is like. Right. He's just saying anything that makes him insecure is his boundaries. But your insecurities yeah. are not are not your boundaries. He's completely misusing, misusing the terms like you have to. We obviously I think the three of us are very 
appreciative of mental health challenges we've talked about, but like certainly there's quite a gulf. There's like, you know, the Simone Biles and the, and the, and the tennis player. And then there's like the Kanye of it all where he wields mental health too. And there's lots going on in the middle, but it's like, we're all people that have to live in a society. So if you are not able to tolerate these things, you obviously are not capable of having a romantic relationship. What do you guys think about her sharing them? Because there's been some response to that too. Do you see it as like a lot of women, probably people of all genders really in relationships, do you think that they saw that and thought, oh, I never really thought about how like I'm treated that way. And a lot of people on the internet are saying that this isn't okay. What do you think about her sharing them? What value, what value was there to sharing them? Even if there wasn't, I think it's still worth talking about, but do you think there was a value to sharing them or is it just like they're out? So we might as well talk about it. I think one of the values to sharing them, and I do think that like when you're getting into the world of sharing private messages, like that is dicey and it is hard to say where the line is between being like, I had a shitty relationship. Should I put all these messages out? Whatever. But one of the things about abuse, particularly the way that like women are abused in relationships by men is that it does happen all behind closed doors. It does happen in private. It does happen over text and DM and all of this different stuff. So there's no way to really come forward about this kind of stuff without sharing things that happen in private because the abuse itself and emotional manipulation and that kind of stuff does happen in private. And so if, and again, if she just, if she just posted an Insta story that was like, Jonah Hill was emotionally abusive, people would say, show the receipts. Mm -hmm. People would say, prove it, Mm -hmm. you know? So she, as a woman, if you are going to leverage an allegation, we've all learned that you have to come correct with receipts and proof and all of this different stuff. And then people will still be like, yeah, but it wasn't that bad or you really shouldn't have had to. So there was no way for her to like say what her experience in this relationship with this powerful person who, again, is trying to make himself out to be a mental health advocate and like a leader in that space. He put out this documentary all about his work with his therapist and all of this stuff. So, like, there's no way for her to do that without showing the messages. And also, I just think you have to show what it actually looks like for people to understand what we're actually talking about. Because women are not believed. They're not listened to. You can't just come with vague, like, well, he was emotionally abusive and controlling without showing the messages. You can't. Yeah. And I just think that, again, you know, as a society, we've gotten to a place where we can acknowledge to a certain extent that, like, domestic violence is wrong. Marital rape is wrong. Like, there are these hard lines of things that, like, We have just gotten to this point of defining like, okay, this is wrong. And there's, but the thing is like, those are like the absolute, like worst things that could happen, you know, like the worst Mm -hmm. scenarios. And there, it leaves all this other inappropriate behavior in relationships. Um, 
that haven't been discussed and haven't been defined yet. So I think, you know, one thing of like, well, the texts are private or this and that. It's like to Elisa's point, all this abuse is private, but like even classifying it as abuse, people are like, oh, well, he did just put his boundaries or like this, you know, and it's just like, we're talking about coercive control. And that is something that, you know, I think that there was value because again, this again brings up to me the Aziz Ansari uh, stuff where it was like, you know, oh, well, she said yes. or It's just like coercion and breaking someone down. That's not an enthusiastic thing. You know what I mean? She wasn't like, hey, I'm not really liking like I don't really want to have pictures of me modeling anymore or I don't really want to have pictures. of You know, that's different, you know. Mm -hmm. But again, we're having this conversation of like this man broke me down in the same week that we had, again, issues with Kiki Palmer. Like it, it is relevant to what's Absolutely. going on because there was just a huge discussion about men who aren't comfortable with what women wear and all this stuff and like what is right or wrong to demand of a partner and ultimately your partner is an autonomous human being who's going to wear and do whatever they want and I think society is dealing with the shift of like understanding that control like mm -hmm. understanding that and then also like it's just there is no way that that behavior continues to happen and it doesn't lead to abuse you know mm -hmm. there's nothing in those texts I, I remember a few months ago when the Stephen Crowder videos were coming out like it's all right, the same right. point but Stephen Crowder is a right-wing um influencer and he doesn't care you know what I mean so like this man you know J Jonah Hill supposedly the most woke like therapized man and all this stuff and it's like He's speaking to his partner the same way, you know, mm -hmm. so yeah, I, I can't imagine value. Yeah, I can't imagine Emily being her and watching. All, yeah, Emily Nussbaum, which is a writer from The New Yorker, the TV critic, who I generally agree with. Yeah, uh, just tweeted that, you know, text between partners in a romantic relationship should just like never be shared, which even is if, just like even if is, they're bad. Yeah, come on. Also, this is the year it is 2023. Do not put anything in writing with your with your husband, with your wife, with your sister, with your mom, that you wouldn't want other people to see. Have you Especially seen a single a documentary? Figure. Like, of, co of, of course it's fair game. Anything you say. And he was like, he. I mean, if you read the text messages, I mean, they're so they're so voluminous. <laughs> he had so much at the at the tip of his tongue. And I can't imagine being her watching his sort of like public persona, which isn't as sort of like hapless, funny, nice guy as it used to be. It's definitely like darkened um, a little bit. Her being able to show that, like, the reason he sort of has put a sheen on his reputation with this mental health embrace is like kind of like full of shit, or he's manipulating it. I know that the the viral like we're all using therapy talk too much. Rebecca Fishbein, who wrote that, she's writing something on this too. So I'm curious to see a um, to see what the expert she interviews because it's a really difficult conversation. You don't want to dismiss people and their like genuine. Um, how they feel, but it's like, he should have just said that to his therapist who could have corrected him hopefully and said, so those aren't boundaries. Those like, like what's, what, what, what my husband's account? He's like, it's, it's a boundary for me that you don't vote. What? Like it, it, you yeah. can't just ban your partner from doing something and, and call it a boundary. And it's not, it's not, a, it's not a fine line. It's a pretty stark line. Well, one of the things about boundaries too, is that it's like, there, there's supposed to be things that like you can enforce for yourself. Mm -hmm. Like again, Millie gave the example of like, I can't be around people who are drinking. 
-hmm. That is a boundary for me. So I will either remove myself from situations where people are drinking, put it out front ahead of time. If people are coming over to be like, this is going to be a dry event because I can't be around people who are drinking. Like it's something that is important, but it's also your responsibility to enforce your boundaries. So like if these are actual boundaries for Jonah Hill, that's not her problem. It's his. It, yeah, it's not her problem. It's his. And those boundaries would have been in place when he got into the relationship with her, her. And it was on him to be like, actually, I have a boundary that I can't date someone who has close rela- friendships with men and is sexy online. So I shouldn't pursue this person like that should be on him, not her to change her life. The other biggest red flag to me in those messages um because like i feel like the famous one that's going around is him listing like you can't have sexy photos you can't surf with men etc and the last one is you can't have friendships with unstable women from your wild recent past beyond lunch or something respectful and that to me is a really important part of it, because I think what these messages sh- just actually show is the beginning stages of an abusive and controlling relationship. Of course. And yeah. so that is him being like, I am going to tell you which women you can be friends with. And I would bet a lot of money that the women that he continue- considers unstable friends from her recent wild past are the same ones who would maybe be there for her if they broke up, Mm -hmm. point out red flags to her and say, hey, like you, I don't think this is a great relationship. Maybe they're just single women themselves and he doesn't want her to have single female friends that she can rely on. Like that is actually what the beginning of this kind of coercive relationship looks like. And the only way that we can actually see that and the only way that people can actually see the way that therapy speak, quote unquote, is used in this way is if she released the text messages. Because other than that, like I've seen memes for a while about like men going to therapy and just learning how to like couch their shitty behavior in therapies terms or whatever i've seen it on the show couples therapy like play out in this like specific way but the only way for people to actually be like this is what we're talking about is for her to put those text messages out there exactly speaking of boundaries we are going to pull in our guests to uh talk about the supreme court which does not have many Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Because now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone for any occasion. And it's easy. You just tap or click Gift Mode in your Etsy app or Etsy.com and then answer a few questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated gift idea list based on hundreds of personas. Now it is simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of my favorite things to do are go to Etsy gift mode and then search absurd things like what kind of gifts do you have with Walter Cronkite on them? What kind of 
gifts do you have for Dachshund owners? There's jewelry, ceramic, toys, board games, all kinds of fun stuff. A gifting moment is always right around the corner. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's Newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com. Newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. We are back today. We are so excited to be joined by two of the hosts of the podcast, Strict Scrutiny, a show about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it, hosted by Kate Shaw, Melissa Murray, and Leah Littman. We are here today with Leah and Melissa. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Leah, I'm curious, who has occupied more of your brain in the last 72 hours, Taylor Swift or the Supreme Court justices? Well, the last 72 hours, probably Taylor Swift, just because it was the release of Speak Now, Taylor's version and the epic, you know, release party that she basically had the first night of Kansas City. Our producer, Melody, was actually at that show. But it's just because of that particular timing. This is a bit of a fluke. Got it. Got it. I'm going to say, I think I had Clarence on my mind, not so much Taylor. <laughs> he released his new album, too. It's called um, Induct Me Into Horatio Alderman, <laughs> Clarence's version. Uh, well, it feels odd to say congratulations on such a great set of episodes because the subject matter that you're covering is so like deeply unsettling. But it has been, um, I know, quite um, an amazing place for me to kind of seek information about what the fuck is going on. So thank you for all of you. You guys are the queens of the emergency episode. Thank you so much. That's extremely kind. We're obviously super fans. Um, I was oh. just saying, like, you all put out an Instagram meme that was basically like, pick your favorite red state adventure with your chosen billionaire friend um, for, you know, yes. different Republican leading Supreme Court justices. Chef's kiss. Amazing. Love I am it. always listening to your podcast thinking how we could translate it to content. <laughs> <laughs> Millie, that was great, great work. Um, and, and I've also wondered, like, why is it always fishing or football games? Like, why can't they go on a spa weekend? That's what I'm saying. That's exactly my point is that they are obviously they're handing over deliverables to, you know, millionaire or billionaires. Mm -hmm. But it's never anything fun. Like, I'm like, go off the coast of the Riviera, not Michigan or I hey, really careful. Alaska. You always get us into trouble here, Millie. 
I know, I know. I'm just like, if I'm gonna ruin democracy and take away women's right to choose and affirmative action, I want to be on below deck, mad baby. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think Clarence might be. I mean, because he is on Harlan Crow's super yacht. Yeah. yeah. Going to the Galapagos, so he might be doing it right. But Justice Alito, unless you're rubbing that salmon on your face, it's doing absolutely nothing for your complexion. Absolutely. All right, we will get right into our interview. And, you know, in your answers, I would love if you could refer to the justices with some of the nicknames, if you'd like, if our audience do, they are, you are so prolific with the nicknames. So so feel free to, to pepper them in. But I'm going to start really, really broadly here. This was um, quite a term, quite a lot happened. You you all recently did sort of like the term in, in summary, but I'm curious, you know, how do you think it will be remembered? I mean, this is the court that, decided that it wasn't going to waste its 6-3 conservative supermajority. And you know, I think for your listeners, it's important to have context. Like generally, the court sort of has like oscillations. Like if there was a really big blockbuster term, and, and usually what we mean by a blockbuster term is that there's one really significant case. So the last term, Dobbs is certainly a very significant case, but it wasn't the only one. There were really significant decisions on religious freedom and gun rights. Um, that was very much a blockbuster term in every sense of the word. And usually when you have a blockbuster term like that, the next term is a little more muted as you know, gives the country a little opportunity to sort of catch its breath, like modulate a little. But this wasn't what we got. We didn't get a muted term. We didn't get to catch our breath. Like this court was like, you know what? We're putting our foot on the gas. We're going further. We've got Leonard Leo's checklist and we're going to check off some stuff. So, you know, they demolished abortion rights last term and this term they're like, more to do, get rid of affirmative action, get rid of all of it. And so this was another barn burner of a term. And I think you've got to ask yourself, how many more barns are there left for the Supreme Court to burn? Or are they just really going to burn everything down for the next few years? I'm scared. I didn't realize we had so many barns. I didn't realize they were <laughs> they were under the threat that they are under now. It's alarming. Sam Alito will build some barns just to burn them. I feel like if you were just kind of skimming, you know, the legacy media outlets, you would think that this was a term that the court kind of held back, right? Unlike the prior term when it nuked Roe and put women and pregnant people's lives, their health, their safety at risk immediately. Um, but if you kind of peek beneath the curtain or if you listen to our podcast or if you go a little bit deeper, you know, then the kind of superficial numbers suggest like most real people will remember this as a term where the court literally nuked student debt relief and made almost 43 million people, you know, 10 to $20,000 poorer, where it basically created an open invitation for certain service providers to discriminate against the LGBTQ community, where it overruled affirmative action because they just went full all lives matter, um, and a bunch of other things where this is a court with a very clear ideological agenda, and it is not going to stop pursuing that agenda, you know, basically ever until somebody makes them. Yeah, that actually brings me to my question for you guys. So like on the show, you don't hide your cynicism about this court, what it's capable of. But were there any moments from this term that actually did surprise you? Did anything catch you off guard? Well, there were a couple of, I'd say, glimmers of hope. But, you know, like a Jonah Hill in your DMs, like this court immediately <laughs> quashed them. Um, so there was, I think, a really surprising decision in the voting rights case, Allen versus Milligan, where the court 
resisted the incredibly tempting opportunity to further hobble the Voting Rights Act. And you know that was enormous because this court has wasted no opportunity to just stick it to voting rights from 2013's Shelby County versus Holder to Brnovich versus Democratic National Committee, which was just a few years ago. We thought for sure that the Voting Rights Act and Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act specifically was on its last legs. And you know it issued a very surprising decision that upheld Section 2 challenges in circumstances involving racial gerrymandering. And, you know, I will say I was still a little muted in my praise of the court because, again, I think that upholding the Voting Rights Act and allowing for individuals to litigate claims of racial gerrymandering is something that the court should uh, should allow in, in most circumstances. Um, so, so I didn't see this as giving us anything. I think it was merely holding the line and refusing to push the line further. But, you know, I agree that for civil rights groups, this was an enormous victory because they're used to losing, frankly. I mean, so literally the bar is in hell. So that was surprising. Uh, but again, I just want to reiterate It wasn't an unalloyed progressive victory. Like we should have won that case. It was an egregious example of a racial gerrymander. And more troublingly, the decision actually followed on the heels of an earlier shadow docket decision from last year in which the court, before it decided these maps were unconstitutional and were a racial gerrymander, actually allowed the maps to go into effect and allowed them to be used in the 2022 midterm election which basically handed the House of Representatives to the GOP. So this court had already done a lot of mischief before finally holding back and saying, you know, we're going to uphold the Voting Rights Act. Uh, Leah, you you and your hosts talk about how sustained public dialogue and reaction to the court staying on their necks more specifically, it does influence the justices' behavior. I'm curious how so, because as you've mentioned and you mention often, they do do some crazy unhinged things. So what is what is like their calculus? How did they decide like when to be completely unhinged, when to pull back right at the edge? I think a few different things. Um, one is, you know, in the chief justice's ideal universe, they would act in unhinged ways, but say, I'm actually very hinged and this is very legal and very cool. And then the media would cover them as such. And I think this term, we saw more of that than just the completely off their rockers, like unhinged banana crazy of the previous term. So like still crazy, just like crazy in a different way. Lee, I'm laughing because of the thought of the chief justice says on hinge. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I'm not going to make a joke about which of the justices I think is most likely to be on hinge. Um, <clears throat> Brett Kavanaugh. <laughs> well, I just want to well, note that was not me, Leah, who said that. Um, well, he does love beer and long walks on the beach and paying down his credit card debt in mysterious ways. No debt, debt free. If you're a debt free man on Hinge, <laughs> this mm-hmm. sounds like a Hinge profile. I'm just saying. <laughs> but you know, I think that as to when they decide to do what, the Chief Justice is one of the best, if not the best, politician in D.C. He is extremely adept at figuring out how far can we push the envelope without people actually challenging our authority. Right? How can we depict ourselves and this institution? 
person as credible, as legitimate, as not doing the crazy thing while still fulfilling the conservatives' wish list. So, you know, they're kind of looking around. They definitely read, you know, opinion pieces. They read newspapers. They care about what people think about them, right? Like Brett Kavanaugh is in desperate need of validation. Um, And that is... You should go to Jonah Hill's therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Boundaries. Brett needs to learn boundaries. The Dobbs decision, it's not that we don't want women to make decisions about their bodies. We're just putting down a boundary. We're simply laying down a boundary. Yeah. Exactly. Um, So, yeah, it's a complicated calculus, but basically they look around the world, they look at who is kind of reacting to them, how, right, they definitely read opinion polls, they have some sense about how particular issues, right, the American public feels about them. Um, They also consider stuff like timing, like what else is happening in the world. And these are just some of the things that go into their decisions. And we know this stuff matters, because they complain about it all the time when they are criticized. Like Sam Alito has the thinnest skin of anybody on the face of the planet. He literally took to the pages of the Wall Street Journal to bitch about how people were not coming to his defense. The chief justice used his final opinion in the term to lecture Justice Kagan about how she was being too mean to him when he blew up student debt relief. Like, None of these justices have a Jamaican mother, because if they did, they would be ready. And well, none of the conservative justices have a Jamaican mother because they would be willing and receptive to criticism because like (laughs) that's what Jamaican moms do. Like I I say this from my own experience. Well, I mean, and you can see that from when Kamala made Brett Kavanaugh cry. (laughs) In his <laughs> I mean, clearly that was his only encounter with the Jamaican He had never mother. had that before. He was not and, used to it. And again, not raising her voice, just looking at him. I mean, <laughs> that was the classic Doreen Murray move. She I, just I had to, to raise her eyebrows yeah. and be like, did you talk to anyone about this? Did you? And then he flipped the fuck out and lost it. Yeah. Yeah. Just whipped. Speaking of memorable black women, (laughs) what was most memorable about Justin Kintanji Brown Jackson's first year on the Supreme Court? So much to remember about her first term. Like, first of all, I I feel like her walk on song should have been something from like Big Frida. Like, I did not come to play with you hoes. I came to slay, bitch. Because she just sort of rolled out like she was like, oh, you want to talk want to talk about originalism? I know some originalism, too. Here's what the Constitution has to say about the 14th Amendment. Here's the history. Here are the archives. And you know, she just came like so prepared at every single oral argument. It actually made the justices who had been appointed before her, like the three who'd been appointed before, kind of look like they'd really been lapped. Like, I mean, she was just so fierce and so on top of it every single time. She wasn't silent. She wasn't on the sidelines taking cues from other people. Like she just waded right in. And you know, people lost their absolute shit about it because there were all of these like statistical studies about how much she talked. It's like, and and to me, it was just sort of like, you all clearly do not work in environments where black women exist. And Mm -hmm. it's about time that you did because- we do have things to say. We are really prepared. We work really hard. And 
we're here. Like, we're here and we're not leaving. And she brought all of that energy to it. She made the difference, I think, in a number of cases, that little grudging assent that John Roberts offered to the prospect of diversity statements at the end of the majority opinion in the affirmative action case, I think was a direct response to her absolutely devastating hypothetical and oral argument about you know whether or not two individuals, one white and a legacy candidate, one black and not a legacy candidate, if they could talk about their family histories and the lawyer for students for fair admissions was like the legacy student can definitely talk about her family's history. The black student, mm, I'm not so sure. And she was like, I think that might actually be the equal protection problem here and maybe even a First Amendment problem. And I think John Roberts is like, oh, yeah, you might be right and added this little paragraph at the yeah. end of this opinion. So I thought she was absolutely fantastic. Rookie of the year um, surpassed every other rookie who's been at the court for the last five years. Surely not Amy Coney Barrett, though. I'm not going to name names. I don't think we have to. But I'm just saying, like, <laughs> there was a Beyonce on the stage. And I don't know if she came from South Bend. That's all. <laughs> I do find it interesting, like, the fact that I feel like whenever the majority is writing their opinions, they're so clearly, like... Alito, the chief justice, they're always trying to like infuse them with these zingers that don't actually hit. And then hers are always like hers is always the poll quote, like something from her descent is always the thing that is like the big takeaway. And it's like she's just running laps on him. That's what happens when you're actually qualified and prepared (laughs) for your job. Another question. Is there realistically anything to be done about the whole Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, ethical nightmare of it all. I mean, there's a million and one things that could be done. Congress could put its, you know, big person pants on and actually pass some laws, right, that limit um, the sort of transactions that Supreme Court justices can engage in um, and sort of largesse they can accept. They could actually impose enforceable rules. And I think in order to make that happen, people need to stay on top of these stories and outraged about just how galling this behavior is. You know, the accepting millions of dollars in personal jets, super yachts, luxury travel, luxury resorts, including from people, you know, with business before the court where you're meeting with a bunch of other conservative political organizers and mega donors. It's grotesque. And of course, normal people would look at that and say that raises serious questions about the justices bias, their neutrality, their impartiality. So, but in order to actually do something about it, I think we do actually need to pass some laws. And in order to pass laws, like people need to stay on Congress, you know, elect people who understand how big of a problem this corrupt, captured, you know, agenda-driven court is and demand they do something about it. Leo, so you're saying it's wrong for a a billionaire to own your mother's house? (laughs) You, you know, that's not an impartial court. You know, I mean, I, I understand that um, in some people's minds, all of these stories are about whether it is legal to have friends, like whether it is legal to just have some rando who buys right. your mom's house and then renovates it or pays for your grandnephew's tuition or sends you on Alaskan fishing trips. I actually do think it is legal 
to have friends. Um, I just think that maybe Supreme Court justices should not be trading access to themselves or the institution uh, in favor of these large kinds of favors. I just am not sure Sam Alito was getting these kinds of gifts before he became a Supreme Court justice. I I think this is where Black Twitter can offer a really helpful intervention. So Black Twitter, I think, went kind of crazy when the whole thing about the House and Harlan Crow came up, not because Harlan Crow had necessarily bought the House, but that Clarence Thomas had allowed his mother to live in a home in such a state of disrepair that it required a billionaire to step in to take care of it. Like, what? Like, hello? Like, yes. So put that to the side. I don't know. I want to go. Not a good guy. Going to go out on a limb. I mean, that's that's crazy. That's your mom. Um, So that's crazy. And then I think the other thing um, that came up that I really actually found very persuasive and, and interesting and enlightening was that a number of people noted that Cecilia Suyat Marshall, who is the widow of Thurgood Marshall, recently passed away last um, November. And she was famous for sort of living a kind of reclusive life in Washington because she was so conscious of the fact that her husband was the first black man to serve on the court. And she never wanted to be in a situation where she would bring ill repute on him. So they really didn't socialize with a lot of people because the court's business was so deeply intertwined with so many things in Washington. So they were pretty much on their own. Um, you know, the idea that Cecilia Marshall would send text messages to the chief of staff of a sitting president is absolutely bonkers, but mm-hmm. that's where we are. And so, again, this is a situation where another black man literally would have been run out on a rail if this had happened to him. But we're just sort of like Clarence Thomas, like, you know, can Supreme Justices have friends? Like, right. that's not the question. Well, and also no one was giving Cecilia Marshall bags of $25,000 in cash on Mark Bills and being like, of course, don't put her name on it. But, you know, the point is, is like when you assume these powerful positions, with that comes certain responsibilities to actually conduct yourself in responsible ways. So they cannot engage in this kind of grift, you know, if they want to be the ones setting the rules for the country. They just can't. It also makes sense. I mean, like, so some people have noted that Supreme Court justices actually don't make a ton of money. Like, certainly not like lawyers and law firms can make, they, like, they make modest salaries, but now you understand why they're okay with it. Like, you <laughs> right. can have your right. regular salary, but you're still living high on the hog because you've made friends and your friends are actually ballers. And now you're a baller too. I mean, it just boggles the mind that people aren't up in arms about this because this would have completely felled any other member of the court at any other time. Yeah, we don't even know how Cecilia Marshall felt about QAnon. <laughs> we, we don't no know whether idea. she thinks the president's family should have been living off of barges on Guantanamo Bay awaiting military trials for sedition, which, by the way, yeah. Ginny Thomas was texting. <laughs> does Who does she think drinks blood? We don't know. <laughs> no idea about her views of Pizzagate, correct. <laughs> All right. So I've got a final question for you before Amanda does a little rapid fire game. Um, the Supreme Court term is ended. We're big strict scrutiny fans here. What can we expect for the podcast over the summer? What are you guys looking towards? We each have lined up our own corporate sponsor. They're (laughs) going to be taking us on 
some really lavish excursions on private jets, super yachts and the like. Take me. I'll go to Michigan. Well, I mean, like, <laughs> we want to know what it's like to be a jet. Like, we really have to get it. Like, I'm, I'm totally making this up. We're actually going to be working on some projects. But we have a great lineup of summer reading interviews that we have waiting in the wings for our listeners. So we've read a bunch of books that are court adjacent. So some really interesting reads. And we've actually lined up some great interviews with the authors of those books. Awesome. So it's a great summer reading list. Um, and we hope everyone enjoys it. We'll also have, I think, some special episodes where we do a little Ooh. dramatic reenactment of some really I choice opinions. As some of our friends of the pod will be back to help us reenact some of the best opinions of the last couple of years. And I'm sure if ProPublica stays on there, very appreciated bullshit, you will probably have <laughs> some, some <laughs> things to address there. Don't you think, Leah, we should have like a ProPublica, like, an appreciation pod. Oh man, Probably. absolutely. Oh, they deserve it. Yeah. I mean, if we had the budget to, to send you all out on highly specific <laughs> excursions, we would, we would definitely do it. We have two more minutes left. So I want to ask a few of our, our rapid fire questions, but Leah and Melissa, Leah, start with you. If you could send a push notification to every American cell phone with one piece of information about the Supreme court or its justices, you think the most vital thing that we all should know, what would it be? Sam Alito is making rules that govern you. <laughs> Mm -hmm. What about you, Melissa? Um, Clarence Thomas is living better than you are. And why is that? Mm -hmm. yes. Those are both very, very. Um, yeah, I feel some type of way about both of those. Those are both very motivating. OK, Leah, who is the pettiest <laughs> Supreme Court justice? Bad at being petty? Um, Sam Alito. Like he holds grudges and just can't kind of carry them out. Um, good at being petty, as in like making those digs that just knife you. Justice Kagan. Oh, got it. Uh, Melissa, which Supreme Court justice is the most desperate to be liked? And this is my indirect way of asking you, why is Brett Kavanaugh so desperate to be liked, especially by like New York Times reading liberals? Like you're not. No, bro, we don't like you. So I, I, I've actually met Brett Kavanaugh and he is actually incredibly likable. Like I, mm -hmm. I think he actually wants to be liked and he works very hard at being likable. Um, I don't know why that is, but I, I think it kind of goes back to that sort of Del Marva, Maryland lax culture that he absolutely comes from. Like, I think he wants to be that guy that you know the lax bro that everyone likes like he's not really alienating he's smart but not too smart just smart enough to be non-threatening but still super successful and someone that you can admire and like um, mm -hmm. I, I think that's this his whole vibe he is like every guy I went to UVA with <laughs> <laughs> who is more sensitive Samuel Alito or Elon Musk and I'm curious if you have the same answer Sam Alito. Oh. I mean, Elon Musk right now, like, has a bunch of people saying, like, what an utter dumb fuck he is all the time. And he's mm -hmm. basically proven that nonstop True. over the last year. I think Sam Alito actively goes looking for hate posts about him and then works himself up into a frenzy based on that. Mm -hmm. I agree. Completely. Very good distinction. Yeah, Super thank you. sensitive and thin skinned. Um, his skin is dewy and moist. It is not the skin of a septuagenarian. Um, I don't know why that is, but it's definitely it's because he drinks unicorn blood. Yeah, Absolutely. that is my favorite frequent motif on strict scrutiny that Samuel Alito has incredible skin. <laughs> I mean, like, I, like, I feel like we should give credit where credit is due. Absolutely. He actually does. Um, mm -hmm. He did show up at the World Series looking a little bit rough. Puffy. Um, <laughs> rough. Um, like he had not been using his solo wave, but mm -hmm. otherwise, 
That is a man who looks like he's in his 50s, even though he's like pushies. I mean, I think he sleeps well. I don't think he tosses and turns about the same things that we do, which you, of course, can hear plenty about on future episodes of Strict Scrutiny. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We'd love to have you back sometime again. We're we're huge fans. And if if our listeners don't listen to Strict Scrutiny, please, I always tell my friends, like, each one of you could do an hour of stand-up. It's like the funniest. (laughs) It's like low-key the funniest podcast out there. But it's about the Supreme Court. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. That is our show. Until the end of Democracy, I'm Amanda Duberman. I'm Elise Morales. I'm Millie Tamaris. And this is the Betches Up Podcast. Bye. The Betches Up Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman, Sean Kilby, Jorge Morales Pico, and Rebecca Sousmacat. Editing by Rebecca Sousmacat. Social media by Amanda Duberman and Bridget Swartz. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore SUP on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send us your emails at SUPPod at Betches.com. Betches.